just feel like a fool? No. How's that for an opening line of Bible study? How many of you, honestly, just have ever just felt like a fool? I just want to see if there's anyone who hasn't felt like a fool. A couple, okay. Yeah, no, I I do all the time. I'm always doing stuff. And I've actually gotten to the point where I enjoy it, uh, especially with my teenagers. You know, when we're driving down the car and I do something and they just roll their eyes and they do the, Dad, you know, and I'm just like, yeah. There are many times that I just feel like a fool. I feel like kind of an idiot, you know. And, And when we consider where we've come from in our lives and where the Lord is taking us, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. When we think about our most foolish moments and know that even in those moments, Jesus was willing to die for us. It's just amazing. We're going to talk about a fool tonight. But before we get there, we're going to finish up with the life of Samuel. Remember Samuel, whose book we're studying, the supposed author of of 1 and 2 Samuel, although he dies here at the beginning of chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, which makes writing 2 Samuel a little more difficult. Verse 1 of chapter 25, 1 Samuel tells us, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Interesting. It's almost almost an afterthought. At this point, David's story is moving. It's rolling along. He's being chased by Saul. You know this period of life that he's in. If you've been here the last few weeks, with the ten, ten years of David's life spent running from Saul. And we've been looking at that and it's getting more and more exciting and more and more intense. Things just keep happening. And you almost forget about Samuel, who the last time we heard from him... Well, David ran and hid with him, but prior to that, he was just kind of riding circuit there in in Israel. A little circuit preacher. Going from one town to the next, and then ending up back at his home in Ramah, and then he'd get back out and he'd go town to town, praying for the people, interceding, ministering to them as, as a prophet. He was the last of the judges, but his judgeship was rejected by all of Israel. How do you imagine that feels? Although we can all relate to being a fool, I think we also can all relate at some level in our lives to having been rejected. But have you ever been rejected by an entire group of people? You see, Samuel was. This this great man of God, the last of the judges who delivered the people, but he was a deliverer unlike any other prophet, any other judge before him. Because Samuel delivered the people spiritually. Others, Samson, delivered them from the Philistines. Great strong man, not a very spiritual man. Gideon, though he talked with God and bantered with God and and argued with God, still not the most spiritual of men, but, but he delivered Israel from their enemies. And most of the judges were like that, flawed super people. Back when we studied judges, we saw that, but not Samuel. Samuel comes along. And from his first introduction to the Lord, when he's serving, ministering in the temple, at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, we see him there. And he hears from the Lord. God speaks directly to him. And we all of a sudden realize, this this guy's different. There's something different about this man. And he begins to lead. And to judge Israel as a spiritual deliverer 
until long about chapter 8. If you want to flip back there, keep your, first, your finger there in 1 Samuel 25 and, and look back at chapter 8, verse 4. For there is a tragic moment in the life of this leader of Israel, a man who has given himself to the people of Israel. He loves them, he prays for them, he ministers to them. It is all about them. His whole life is an act of service. Well, verse 4 of chapter 8 tells us that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. I think displeasing there, displeasing is also translated evil. I think you could probably slide another word in there. And that's heartbreaking. Because I think for Samuel this would be heartbreaking. He has given his life to these people. And what they're saying in essence is, we don't want this judgeship thing anymore. We don't want you ruling over us with all your spirituality. We want a king like the nations. We want to go secular. We want to be like America. (laughs) We don't want the authority of God. Or the authority of a man of God like you, Samuel. Give us a king. Tells us Samuel did what he often did in verse 6. He prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, and this is just wonderful. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God's response to Samuel is not to say, bummer for you, Sammy. (laughs) Sorry, I guess it just didn't work out. We better find someone else. God's response was, oh, Samuel, your rejection is not a rejection of you, it's of me. He slides right in and sits down beside Samuel, puts his arm around him emotionally and says, I'm right here with you. You're not alone. I know exactly how you feel because for them to reject you is an absolute and outright rejection of me. Isn't this what Jesus said to expect? He said in John chapter 15 verse 18, If the world hates you, you know, you know that it has hated me before you. Now, strong words, but they're words of comfort nonetheless. If you ever feel hated, or persecuted, or made fun of, or put down simply because of your faith in Jesus, know that he was long before you. And in knowing that, believe that Jesus completely understands what it's like to be on the outside. What it's like to be rejected. God has been rejected since almost day one. When Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple, rejection. When Noah got drunk, rejection. When the people built the Tower of Babel, rejection. When Abraham lied about his wife for fear, rejection. When Sodom and Gomorrah went down, rejection. And we could go on and on tracking the history of mankind, the history of Israel with the Father. Rejection, rejection, rejection. God knows what it feels like. And so he says, listen, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to serve me, know that you're going down a road that most people are not going to accept. If they hate you, know that the world has hated me before you. In John chapter 1 verse 10, laying out kind of in summation Jesus coming, the Apostle John says he was in the world and the world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own... The Jewish people did not receive him. But, as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but people who were born of God. Hannah and I went to a Switchfoot concert on Monday night. If you know anything about Switchfoot, some of you do, this band rocks. It's a band of Christians, though they're not really a Christian band, although their, their lyrics are very spiritual and very God-oriented, but they're not, they're not focused, at, you know, they're not like Chris Tomlin, they're not going to come out and lead worship, and they rock, and they rock hard. And we were sitting there in that auditorium, and I'll tell you what, we saw first a group called Ruth, which is a Seattle band, you ever heard of Ruth, they're, they're awesome. Ruth played, and then Reliant K played, and Reliant K is one of these bands that uh, kind of the, the new style of music is as fast as you can possibly play. That's good. You know, the drummer's going like that, and I'm just going. I'm looking at my daughter just, you know, jumping back, more her hair's flying, and I'm going, I used to do that, and now it hurts, you know? And so we saw the Switchfoot concert, and we had a great time, and we, we just jumped around together and laughed. And as we were driving home, Hannah was talking about her favorite Switchfoot song that she said she finally got it. She goes, it, it clicked in for me. Today, before we left for the concert, she said, I was thinking about it. It's a song called The Beautiful Letdown. And in this song, over and over in The Beautiful Letdown, he sings, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Those words again and again play out at, at the tail end of the song. I don't belong here. And, and Hannah said, I didn't understand what that meant, the beautiful letdown. I don't belong here. She says, I, I get it now, Dad. I said, what does it mean to you, Hannah? And she said, I was walking around school today and I was looking at my friends and classmates and people at Anacortes High School. And she said, and it just hit me. I don't belong here. I don't fit here. And she said, I have friends. But I don't belong here. And she said, that's kind of a letdown. And she goes, but Dad, it's a beautiful letdown. Mm-hmm. I, you know, choking back the tears, I went, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> but she's got it right. There is not one thing, well, there is. There's one thing in the world that Jesus tells us to look forward to, and that's his return. It's not Christmas. It's not birthdays. It's not week. the weekend. Back in the 80s, everybody was waiting for the weekend. Well, now that we figured out it came, it wasn't that good after all. It's not waiting for the next vacation. It is waiting for His return. That's the only thing that God says look forward to. That's it. Paul says, I press on. What for, Paul? For the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's what I look forward to. Other than that, other than that, live in the now. That's what Jesus says. Let tomorrow's trouble be enough for tomorrow. Let the day's trouble be enough for today. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow. It'll take care of itself. You live in the now with one forward motion thought in your mind, and that's my return, because you don't belong here. And Samuel does not belong. Samuel, to my mind and my estimation, was too good for this world. But all of his goodness was the Holy Spirit upon this man. And he didn't belong. And so Israel rejected him. It's interesting that the chapter starts out that it says, All Israel gathered together and mourned for him. Why? Because we don't often know what we have until it's gone. Now that Samuel is gone, now Israel goes, He was something else. We're going to miss him riding circuit. We're going to miss him showing up in town to pray for us and to, to serve. We're going to miss seeing Samuel. And they buried him at his house in Ramah. Well... 
Samuel, this last judge and great prophet of Israel, died. By the way, I did mention, as we said early on, I'll, I'll repeat myself here, if Samuel died here before 1 Samuel is even finished, how in the world did he write 2 Samuel? And the answer is 1 Chronicles 29.29 29, that tells us the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer. So though we assign 1 and 2 Samuel to Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel as a collection of, of writings about King David, about his life from the beginning on the, all the way through, these two books were written at least by these three men by these three prophets of God Samuel, Nathan, and Gad of course I shared before that these three men did have a ghost writer a holy ghost writer 2 Peter 1.20 says no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God and Peter is not by the way saying that scripture is not for our interpretation It's not a matter of us interpreting it one way or another. What he's saying is no word that was written was an interpretation of the person who wrote it. Not a single word in scripture was some guy sitting in a room with a pen going, I think God wants me to say this. Or my life perspective sees the world this way. So that's what I'm going to say God wants for us. No, not a single word was written as a matter of one prophet's own interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And I do believe this absolutely, that the Bible is inerrant. Word for word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. But we have an inerrant book, penned by men, but written by the Holy Spirit. Now as David's story progresses, we meet two interesting people. One is a fool named Nabal, and the second is a beauty named Abigail. Verse 2. Now I'm going to read verse 2 and 4, and then go back and read verse 3 because it's easier to follow. So here we go. Verse 2. Now there was a man in Ma'an whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, verse 4, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Verse 3, which is an aside. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Now, three quick study notes to recognize right here. Number one, this is not Mount Carmel in the north when it says this is Carmel because they're down in Judah and Mount Carmel is up by modern-day Haifa, which would be quite a distance and it wouldn't make sense for David to be up there, but there was a Carmel down in the south. And that's the Carmel that's being talked about here just to kind of put, put you in perspective. It's about plus or minus eight miles or so south of Hebron on the map. So that's the first thing to note. And the second one is Nabal himself. I called him a fool because that's what his name means, fool. I don't know why his parents chose to name him that, but I know he lived up to his name. Nabal is an absolute nincompoop. The guy is a fool. His wife will later say about him, as his name is, so is he. Is that great? I don't know what all your names mean. Cheryl and I were driving home tonight and we had to go pick up Hannah and as we came back she said, I was sharing this with her about Nabal meaning fool and she said, that's so weird how biblical names end up being biblical characteristics of the people who are named that way. How, how often the name speaks of the person. It's just incredible how that happens. Yeah, it, it really is. Nabal lives up to his name, fool. 
He's a complete idiot. And I'm not being mean. He just is. The Bible tells us this. He's a doofus. You want to know the most telling characteristic, by the way, of a fool? I I went into this whole thing, and I ended up setting it aside because it would have taken too much time tonight. But I went into a, a fool study in the Scriptures. I just started looking up all the verses on the fool and checking out what looked like me and what didn't. And it was a little frightening. But going through the book of Proverbs and checking that out. And and that's a great place to get some characteristics of fools. Like a fool who says in his heart there is no God. So to be an atheist, I'll let you add that up. But there are many different definitions of a fool or characteristics of fools in the Bible. This is the first man who's named fool and owns it. But Jesus said this. And I think it's the number one characteristic of a fool in the world. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Definition of a fool. Everyone who hears these words of Jesus and does not act on them is a fool. It is foolish. People go through life and don't consider eternity and that to me is the most foolish thing in the world Brian Regan, comedian talking about getting glasses talking about going to the eye doctor and, and getting glasses realizes that he can't see very well at all and he said why, why is it that we put off going to get glasses or going to see an eye doctor how can instantly improved vision not be at the top of your to-do list and I thought you know how can eternity not be at the top of my to-do list. How many people have never considered eternity? Or who just said it, I'm too busy. I'm too busy today. Have you seen what's on my desk? I'm just too busy to think about my eternal condition and my eternal state. How can that not be the most important thing? How many people take the time to sit down and just see what the Bible actually has to say about eternity? It's amazing. I have a friend who proclaims to be an atheist. He says, I'm an atheist. And then he goes about and talks about God. How how can you do that? And he tries to say that he thinks that all gods are, they're just different names for the one and the same God. And then I remind him, well, you said you're an atheist. Well, I am. But if I did believe, then, you know, it's uh, whatever. Have you ever sat down and just, just read what the Bible has to say about eternity? about what it means Jesus says everyone who hears these words of mine and does nothing about them is a fool well that's the characteristic I think the worst characteristic of a fool to hear the words of Jesus and and not to act on them doesn't mean that we're perfect you're going to hear words of Jesus tonight walk out here and forget some of them that's not what we're talking about here it's absolutely ignoring the words it's rejecting the idea that those words could get into my heart and change me On the other hand, the wisest person who ever lived is the person who says, I will live my life by the words of Jesus. I will meditate on Jesus' words. I will think about everything that he said. I will take the word into my life and into my heart. And I will say, God, change me by speaking into me. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. 
So Nabal's a fool. We'll see this in his life. Abigail, Abigail his wife, which is amazing that she married him in the first place. How he ended up with her is incredible. And sometimes I look at Cheryl and I think the same thing. You know, not how I ended up with, but how she ended up with me. Oh, no, whatever. Abigail's name means joy of the Father, and she lives up to it. Joy of the Father. She's a triple threat gal. She's beautiful. She's got brains, and she is godly. And she is an example of feminine godliness in the Bible. And ladies, you may want to pay close attention to Abigail tonight and how she handles herself, especially with this fool of a husband of hers. And you may even be able to make personal application. I don't know. I'll leave that to you. (laughs) Verse 5. So David sent... (laughs) I'm watching for elbows because I'm noticing Joe's not even sitting in my Karen tonight. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) Verse 5. So David sent ten young men. Because remember, he heard that Nabal was in the wilderness and he's sharing his sheep. And at this point, he doesn't realize that Nabal's a bad guy. He's just out there doing the sheep thing, sorry. Verse 5, David sent ten young men and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life and peace to you. And peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. And by the way, did you know that the character of Spock in Star Trek, did you know that, that this whole thing comes actually out of a, of, a, of a Jewish symbol. You know that? I just thought of that because we're reading the verse and it sounds like Spock. Have a long life and peace be, you know, long life and pro- live long and prosper. Wasn't that Spock? That's basically what David's saying here. Sorry, that had nothing to do with really anything. <laughs> verse 6. Have a long life. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. It's a good, great greeting here. Verse 7. Now I've heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a, on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. He's, he's asking, can you give us some help here? A little bit of food, a little bit of sustenance, some, some provision. Well, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of David? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give them to men whose origin I do not know of? So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told him according to all these words. What's going on here? David's men respected Nabal's property and his workers. All the time, they're out in the fields, they're out in the, in the valleys and hills together with them, and they respect them. But they don't just respect them, they also protect them. What's implied here in the language is that David's men have been keeping robbers and thieves and, and stealers away from them, keeping horse thieves away, keeping sheep thieves away. And protecting these guys and literally providing care for the flocks. It was standard custom in those days if you were protecting someone's flocks that they would give some provision to you. 
It kind of worked both ways. Well, you, you know, you scratch my sheep and I'll scratch you. I don't know. I'll give you some food. We'll work together on this. So what David was asking was not out of line in any way, shape, or form. It was cultural to say, hey, can you give us some food? Just because we're out here and we're, we're taking care of your guys. We're taking care of your sheep. But unfortunately by now, word has spread all over Israel of this division between Saul and David. And people love division. People love to side up. And people love partisanship. As much as we say in America that we're tired of it, we still, when the news comes on and there's a big fight between Democrats and Republicans, we're all, you know, who's going to win this one? And and people choose sides and want to be on a side. And Nabal the fool has chosen his side. And he is siding up with Saul. And what he's saying here, he makes this comment, who's David, who's the son of Jesse? Well, he knows who David is. Remember, all over Israel, they're singing, David has killed his ten thousands. David is a hero. Everybody knows who David is. And he's throwing it back in David's face and he's saying, there are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. And what Nabal has chosen to do here as a fool is listen to speculation. He's chosen to listen to lies that are not true. David did nothing wrong. David did nothing against Saul. And we can retrace the story, but you know it very well. As we've been going through it, David has acted towards Saul with absolute integrity, even sparing his life when he could have killed him. Calling him God's anointed, even though David knew he was anointed himself. Bowing before the king, even though David is supposed to be king, David will not wrest it out of Saul's hands. He has been acting like a man after God's own heart, and yet speculation has gotten out there, and people have chosen sides, and Nabal is saying, you're divisive. You're a splitter. This is your fault. Should I give meat to you? No, I've I've heard about you, David. That's what he's saying. America is not the first country to deal with partisan politics. This is going on in Israel at this moment. Well, verse 13, watch David's response. He said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Now, what is David doing? He's going to take 400 of his fighting men against Nabal and a couple of his sheep shearers. David is ticked. Nabal has gotten David's ire up in a big way. He is flaming mad. And it's really odd to me because David had been betrayed by the people of Keilah and he did nothing to them. Even though he saved them from the Philistines, they betrayed him and and he walked it off. He had been betrayed by the Ziphites, but he had no retaliation against them. His very life was in danger and he didn't go after them. And he had just recently... In the previous chapter, let Saul go himself, who had been murderously chasing him. David forgave him. And now he comes up against this podunk, no account, moron of a miser named Nabal. This little guy who is no real threat to David whatsoever. He just says, I'm not going to share my hamburgers with you. And now David's angry. And he's going off. And he is ready to go slaughter this guy. Why? Why not fight the big bat? Because... Because it's often not the big battles that defeat us, it's the little ones. When we're fighting in the big battles and we are focused on the Lord and we know we're being attacked and we've got our eyes on Jesus, man, we stand strong. But it's those little, little battles 
that catch us unawares. David had defeated Goliath. He had forgiven Saul. But now the full force of his anger is turned on Nabal the nincompoop. Just wanted to say that again. (laughs) Because Nabal's being a jerk. That's the only offense here. And David is in that place. He has won the big battles, but now a little one is going to trip him up. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And here's another verse, and I love this verse. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 15, says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Now, I want you to think about this because it's a beautiful word picture, but it's, it's also very telling. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. It's not the lions and tigers and bears. Thank you. Oh, my. It's not them that we need to fear. They're not the ones coming in and damaging the vineyard. It's the little foxes that we don't see sneaking in at night. It's the little guys. Sneaking in there, slipping in between the vines, doing damage to the vineyard. I've often used this in weddings and in wedding council to say to brides and grooms, beware of the little foxes. Song of Songs is a, is a wedding poem about the love of Solomon for his, for his bride. I'm not sure which one, you know, the 350 or so or the other 350 concubines. 700 wives. We're going to talk about that when we get to Solomon. We're going to try and figure out what kind of counseling he was going through during all that. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Serious therapy. 700. Anyway, he's talking to his bride, though, and he's saying the little foxes, the little foxes, they're the dangerous ones. They're the ones sneaking into the vineyard. Keep guard against them. And I have said this to brides and groups. Watch out for the little foxes. The big battles that come against you in your marriage, there's a tendency to be able to stand together. And, and weather the really huge storm when it comes because you see it and, and you, you know, you're batting down the hatches and you fight back but the little foxes sneak in and those are the things that tend to tear apart marriages things that steal the, the spiritual fruit out of your vineyard of, of love and joy and as the Bible tells us peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control the fruit of the spirit these are the things that are stolen by the little foxes getting into the vineyard. Extra time at work. The young couple saying, we've we got to make enough money to get, get some establishment here in our lives. So, so we begin working really hard, chasing the elusive extra bucks that never really, never really show up. Or a tendency to seek help outside of your marriage instead of within. Which is a warning I always give to couples, even to friends, even to, to a, a, a young wife. Don't go to your girlfriend's for help and counsel you go to your husband first husbands don't go find it somewhere else you two are a team your accountability is number one in your marriage first and then shore it up with other support but you make sure you're not telling anyone male or female about struggles that you're having that you can't tell your own spouse because you start talking outside and then the problems that you're having with your spouse begin to be talked about outside and the little foxes are slipping in Little foxes, movies to avoid, or places we shouldn't go, or voices we should never hear and have to replace the voice of our spouse. There's the man who at work is saying, yeah, but my secretary really listens well. She seems to understand me. That's an affair waiting to happen. Little foxes. Little foxes. Don't forget this, brothers and sisters. We are the bride of Christ. We have a marital relationship with Jesus. And the little foxes can do damage in our spiritual lives as well. 
We may overcome great big temptations with, with wonder and excitement and enthusiasm. Yeah, I handled this. Jesus, I'm standing for you. And then in comes a little fox and we are flat on our face. And that's what's going on with David. He fought the big battles, but now when a little battle comes with this foolish guy, he is incensed and he's about ready to commit murder. He reminds me a bit, actually, of, of Peter. And I mentioned this in one of the services on Sunday morning. Peter is standing there with Jesus in Gethsemane. On the night of his betrayal. Now just hours before this, Peter has said, Jesus, I'll die with you. I'm not going to let you die. I will stab a fight for you and if you die, I'm going to die. And there in Gethsemane, you see Peter grabbing a sword and lopping off the ear of the, of the chief priest's servant. Now he wasn't really going after a Roman centurion. That probably would have been a little more brave than the little servant guy who's just standing there, you know. But but Peter does get out the sword and fight. And Jesus has to say, settle it down, Peter. Put the sword away. That's not what's going to happen here. But he shows at least some courage. He stands up. I'm going to fight the battle. And it is moments, maybe a couple hours later at most, that Peter falls flat on his face when he's confronted by a little servant girl by the fire when she says, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? No, no, I don't even know him. He had a big battle and he did okay. And the little battle comes and he falls flat on his face. And that's typical of how sin works in our lives. Be careful with that. Be careful with it. David's on the way to committing a big sin, even though it's just a little skirmish. And then Abigail steps in. Verse 14. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything, as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. We're in trouble. We're in trouble, Abigail, this, this guy is saying. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Talk about Nabal the fool. Abigail is a graceful woman. Verse 18. She's amazing. Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. This is a full spread. I told Cheryl yesterday afternoon long about five o'clock, hey, I think we'll go ahead and have the elders meeting here tonight. She got cookies and coffee and tea ready like that and I was impressed. Look at what Abigail did. She has opened out the storehouse. She's got all this stuff. She's loaded it up. Verse 19, she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. Why? Because he's an idiot. Because Nabal the doofus would say, What are you doing? Take that food back. We're not going to help out, David. I already said that. And I'm the man of the house. I wear the sandals around here. I don't know what they wore. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the one in charge. So she doesn't tell him. She goes around behind his back. But listen, it wasn't sneakiness against her husband. She knew him well. She knew exactly what he would say. She is protecting him. She is going before him. And she's trying to spare his life from his own personal stupidity. Verse 20. 
it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming by down the hidden part of the mountain that behold David and his men were coming down toward her and so she met them now David had said surely in vain I have guarded all this man has had in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good may God do so to the enemies of David and much more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him and if you're curious see how the King James translates male there it's pretty crude (laughs) I'm not going to do it though verse 23 when Abigail saw David and and by the way I mention that simply to say David was David was a man after God's own heart but he's a real man he was rough and ready and he was tough and and sometimes what he said if if said from a pulpit you kind of go ooh ah So anyway, look that up. You'll you'll find it interesting what the translation of male really is there. Verse 23, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Does this sound familiar? David, the man after God's own heart, took personal responsibility for Saul's butchery of the city of Nob back in 1 Samuel 22. He did the same thing she's doing right now. He said, it's my fault. It wasn't David's fault. Yeah, he lied and yeah, he set things in motion there, but it wasn't his knife and it wasn't his hand that killed the people of Nob or the priests. That was Saul and that was Doeg. But here, Abigail, it's not her fault. She's not the fool. She's not the idiot. She's not the offender. But Abigail... She takes it on herself. So we had a man after God's own heart in David. Now we have a woman after God's own heart in Abigail. Remember, her name means joy of the Father. And you know in this moment, this has to bring joy to the Lord. I'll take the blame. I'll take the blame any time you're willing to take the blame for someone else. Though you've done nothing wrong, I believe it pleases the Lord because that's what Jesus did. He said, I'll take the blame. let Let it fall on me. Not them. They don't know what they're doing. Nabal doesn't know what... We're kind of like Nabal. I hate to tell you that. We don't know what we're doing. Neither did he. So she takes the blame. By the way, wouldn't you love to be called Abigail? I mean, I know some of you guys probably wouldn't prefer that name, but the meaning of the name, wouldn't you love to be called the joy of your father? I mean, I I heard that. When I first saw the name, looked it up, and I thought, man... I want God someday to say, Rick, you brought joy to me. Oh, wow. That would be awesome. You want to know how to do it? You use what you have. You use your gifts. You do what He made you to do. That's all Abigail's doing. She is using what she has. And she's using her gifts and she is being who God created her to be and she is the joy of the Father. I think about Jesus telling the parable of the talents where this master went to three slaves and gave one five talents, another one two talents, another one one talent, and said, I want you to take care of this while I'm gone, and goes away. And when he comes back, the man we gave five talents to had doubled it. Now he had ten, and he gives it back to his master. And the one who had two talents has doubled it, and now has four, and gives it back to his master. And the one who had one talent did nothing, and hands him back his one talent, because he was afraid of it. And I love what the master says to both the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy. And by the way, you may be a five-talent person. You may be one of those who has all kinds of talents. Use them. But you may be, like most of us, the two-talent person. I only have you know, a couple little things really to give. I'm not, I'm not talented in all these different areas. I just got one or two things maybe I can do. 
Do them. Do them. Because the response of the master is the same to both. He says, Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23, The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And then he says this, Enter into the joy of your master. That's how you enter into the joy of your father. That's how you get this this title of Abigail, the joy of the father. You want to be called the joy of the father? Then you do with what he has given you. And you use your gifts to serve the Lord and you will enter into the joy of your master. So verse 25, verse 25, she says, Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. I know my husband well. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now you might say, I can't believe she's putting down her husband like this. I, again, don't believe she's putting him down. I believe she's protecting him. Because she knows him. She knows what a goof he is. But she is a faithful wife who is looking after the the interest of her husband even though she knows that he's a fool. Abigail says, had I seen your guys, you would already be eating by now. Had I known about it, this is my fault, because I, I, I was in the tent, I was unaware, I wasn't paying attention, I didn't see you guys coming, or, or this would not even be a problem. You'd already be sitting around having lunch, and, and we'd be fine. She says, it's my fault. And she is protecting her husband, and I, I think, I can't prove this, but I think she loved him. I think she loved that old fool. <laughs> Some of you wives, you know what I mean, you... You roll your eyes, but you love them. You love them just the same. Verse 26. (laughs) This is a rough one, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. Now therefore, my Lord, verse 26, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as navel. Let your enemies be fools. You, you've restrained yourself. He hasn't restrained himself. He's got to have his hand on the, on the hilt of his sword right now as, as she, he's trying to figure this woman out. Are you kidding me? You're standing up for this idiot? But his sword is not out of its sheath and he is not killing him and he is listening. And she is projecting a little bit here. She's saying, the Lord has restrained you from doing this. Well, he hadn't quite yet, but, but she is being used by the Lord to restrain what would be sin for David if he had followed through. It's amazing. The Lord has restrained you, she says, from shedding blood. In verse 27, Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. And please, here she goes again, please forgive the transgression, the sin of your maidservant, For the Lord will certainly make from my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. Listen, should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. I love that phrase. Bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Do you think Abigail knew David's story well? I mean, just listen to the language she's using. If someone pursues you, you will be protected from him. Well, she knows he's been being pursued by Saul. Obviously. She even uses this phrase that he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. How did David kill Goliath? With a sling. 
And Abigail is appealing to all of this. She's appealing to the history of David. She is very familiar. I think she's been following his exploits online or something. But she knows exactly what's been going on in David's life. And she's appealing to this history of this man. And then she also appeals prophetically to his destiny in saying, The Lord will make for my Lord an enduring house. How do you know that, Abigail? How can you possibly know that unless the Lord has indicated this? Ahead in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, Nathan, the prophet, will say to David, The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And in verse 16 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So back here, Abigail, in appealing to David, she talks about his history, but she talks about his destiny. God's going to build you a great house, David. You have a future that's even beyond your life. There's an eternal throne here that we're talking about. And so she's appealing to his history, his destiny. She's talking to him about all these things. Verse 30. And she goes on, When the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. She said, I don't want you to feel bad about this later. Because there's going to be a day when you're sitting on the throne. I want you to look back and see the sin that you committed against this idiot who's not even worth the time of day. And feel bad about it. And you will. And she's right. She's right. Gang, every time we, we do something that we know is wrong, we're going to look, bad and feel, look back and feel bad about it. And there are times where we kid ourselves and we think, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this and I'll just, I'll just forget about it. No, you won't forget about it. It's going to come back around. And you will think about it. And this is wisdom on Abigail's part. If you kill Nabal now, there's going to be a day when you can look back and regret it. Don't do that. Don't end up in regret. And then she says, when the Lord deals, verse 31, into the verse, when the Lord deals well with my servant, then remember your maidservant. Don't look back on this day with regret. And, and when all the good things happen, remember me. Think about me, David. It is possible Abigail's got a little crush on David. And we don't really see that, not, not really yet, but she is at least very impressed with all that she's heard about this man and all that she knows. And so she says, when you look back, look back and don't remember the idiocy of Nabal, Remember me. Abigail will be a good thing to remember. Verse 32. Well, then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives who has restrained me from harming you unless you had come quickly to meet me surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male there's that word male again and you can look up what that actually how that's translated verse 35 so David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her go up to your house in peace see I have listened to you and granted your request and single handedly this woman Abigail this wise discerning intelligent Godly woman, she melts David's heart. See, she assuages his anger with her grace and her kindness. 
Just as the word declares, by the way. In fact, there is a proverb, Proverbs 15, verse 1, that is this story. Listen to this. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's what Abigail did. But a harsh word stirs up anger. That's what Nabal did. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's the summation of our entire story tonight in one verse. Nabal stirred up wrath, but Abigail turned away wrath. Now I want to come back to something in just a second, but the the story ends with um, four weddings and a funeral. So look at verse 36. Verse 36, Then Abigail came to Nabal. We'll start with the funeral. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. It's a foolish thing to do, by the way. And so she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light, because he probably wouldn't remember anyway. But in the morning, watch this, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Nabal, he wakes up in the morning, and he's sober, probably has a headache, and Abigail tells him how close he came to being killed the day before, and he freaks out and has a stroke. His heart became like stone. So either a stroke or a heart attack, but he went down, and he's coma now for ten days, and finally... This guy, Nabal, dies. Verse 39, there's your funeral. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. You see, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Nabal was deserving, apparently, of this. But David was able to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, instead of look back and go, Wow, there's blood on my hands. It's always better to bless the Lord than have blood on your hands. And because he was restrained by the Lord, he was able to bless the Lord for this. Then he goes on and says, The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. So impressed was he by her. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David had sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. In other words, I'll do anything he says. (laughs) I am in. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidservants who attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Um, Four weddings. Four weddings. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. So he's got Abigail, and he's got Ahinoam, and Saul also, verse 44, had given Michael his daughter, David's wife. David had also, also was married to Michael, three wives. But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So as David's on the run, Saul says to Michael, who's married to David, okay, you're no longer married to David, you're going to go marry Paul, uh, this, this guy, Palti. So, it's like a soap opera. I mean, we got people marrying everybody, going every way, and four wives. David, four wives. You might say, well, Rick, I see three. Well, Bathsheba's coming. David's a man after God's own heart. And he's not a Mormon, so how do you figure this all out? He's married to Abigail. He's married to Ahinoam. He, he is married to Michael, who is now married to Palti. And he's going to be married to Bathsheba. And it's kind of messy, but I just need you to know this is not God's way. This is man's way. Now, someone might read this, and people have, and say, well, why does God allow it? And my answer is, why does God allow you to sin? 
You have the freedom to do what you're going to do, don't you? And it's so funny to me. People will jump on the Old Testament and go, "Oh, well, if it's only supposed to be, you know, a man and a woman married, then and and you know, Solomon had seven hundred and wives and concubines, and David's got multiple wives, and people have multiple wives. So why isn't that okay? Well, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay. This is a book of truth." both good and ugly it's in here and it's true and this is what went on and it just so happens that at this time God is training people and trying to bring people along that's why he gave the law so that man could begin to learn and understand what works and what doesn't work why would he allow David to have four wives to show him it doesn't work why would he allow Solomon to have 700 to show him it just doesn't work and we know that Solomon got the picture because in the book of Ecclesiastes he started writing down, wow, pleasure's nothing. That doesn't work. I tried that. I tried wine and women and song and it didn't work. And I tried study and that didn't work. And I tried all these things and it didn't work. And God is allowing man the freedom to discover that he's a fool. That's what he's doing here. He does the same with David. And then he brings the law to kind of shed light on that. And you might remember this. Galatians 3.34 says, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. But the truth is, though David has four wives, that it always, from the very beginning, has been one plus one equals one. One man for one woman for one life. And that's what God proclaimed for all of us. That's His desire for us. We, we mess that up, and I understand that. And, and we, even today, we have divorces and separations and problems in our marriages. And if you happen to be in that place, understand that God is a God of grace and love and forgiveness, and you need to take it to Him. I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad, but just so that we know the truth. Matthew 19.4, Jesus said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they're no longer two, they're one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now I want you to remember that verse. It's important, especially, ladies, if you happen to be married to a Nabal, or, guys, if you happen to be married to a Nabalette. <laughs> what do you do when your husband's a Nabal? What do you do more broadly? How do you deal with a fool that you happen to be connected to one way or another? A couple things to jot down here at the end. Number one, Abigail does right by her marriage. Abigail does right by her marriage she knows he's a fool she tells us that and so she protects the fool and she cares for the fool she looks after the fool and she does the right thing in spite of the fool I've shared before that one of the great tragedies to me in the church is how many women attend without their husbands and how often that happens how rare it is that a husband attends without his wife truly standing up and trying to be a leader it's often the wife just trying to get some spirituality in the home and the husband sitting home watching the game and I've had wives come to me and say I don't know what to do I have ragged on him over and over I can't get him here and Peter would say maybe you need to stop and he would say the following wives 1 Peter chapter 3 be submissive to your own husbands even if they're idiots, even if they're fools, 
Be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. Remember what we said a fool was before? It's someone who rejects or ignores the words of Jesus. So even if they're disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, you know, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, that's all fine, but, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a good and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Peter goes on and uses the example of Sarah, Abraham's wife. When Abraham was afraid to tell people she was his wife because she was so beautiful, so he let her be taken into the palace of a king and added to his harem to protect his life. And what did Sarah do? Abraham, you big fool, what do you think you're doing? No, she said not a word. She was quiet and she trusted the Lord to protect her, and he did. And she called her husband, who did foolish things, she called him Lord. She respected him. In the same way we see Abigail doing that. She is respecting her husband. She's protecting her husband. She's doing what she can for the old fool. She's not divorcing him, by the way. Though he probably deserves it. (laughs) She's trying to keep it together. And she's doing it quietly and humbly. And Peter has more to say about that. And and ladies especially, if you are here and, and you have a husband who is just absent spiritually then I, I encourage you, read and reread First Peter chapter 3. Go over it and consider and ask the Lord, how do I live this out in front of my husband? Because I'll tell you what, that's how to win him. That is how to win him. Faithfulness, consistency, and show Jesus in the home. And I can't remember the last time Jesus said to any one of us, you idiot, why aren't you getting up and going with me to church? Jesus just says, I'm here. And I love you. And you're welcome to come to me anytime. So Abigail, Abigail did right by her marriage. And if you're unsatisfied or unhappy in your marriage, do right by it anyway. Do right by it anyway. You don't have to you don't have the power over your navel. You can't change your navel or your navelette or your navelline. How's that? That's better. I like navelline. You can't change them. You can only change yourself. You can only control and have power over yourself. And with the exception, Jesus said, of marital unfaithfulness. And I would, by the way, add to that, I believe it's unfaithful to be abusive in a marriage. I believe it's a violation of your faithfulness. So, danger and abusiveness in a marriage, I'll tell you this, eternally speaking, you will not regret sticking it out. Even if he's a fool. Even if she's hard to live with. You will not regret sticking it out. We all have navels in our lives. Some of you might say, well, what if I'm not married? Well, that's the beauty of it. You can still do right by your marriage. (laughs) Wait a minute, Rick. I, I think you missed what I said. I'm not married. I know. You can still do right by your marriage. That is your coming marriage. Abigail did right by her marriage. But the second thing to notice is this. Abigail is delivered into the right marriage. Abigail's delivered into the right marriage. We all have, as I said, Nabal's in our life. Remember on Sunday we talked about the annoying anointed. Those people anointed by God to be in our lives, to be fools, to be jerks, to make it hard for us so that we can be refined and learn how to be Jesus to them. And that's kind of what Nabal is probably in this marriage, an annoying anointed. But how we deal with them directly relates to our coming marriage to Jesus Christ. 
And Abigail is a picture of that. And quickly, yeah, I want to I want to share this with you real quick. In the same way that Abigail was wife of a fool but became the bride of a king, so we too have all been the spouse of a fool, but we are now espoused to the king. Now watch this. Some things to jot down, and we're going to go by these really quickly. So if you're if you're taking notes, write these quickly. Number one, Abigail was stuck with a fool, and so were we. Every one of us. Abigail was stuck with a fool. Nabal, this foolish husband. Every one of us were wedded to a fool. Who are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about you. And I'm talking about me. Before my relationship with Jesus, I was married to an idiot. And here I am. I was wed to myself. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, We also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I read that verse right before I got my lunch today, and I, I set my Bible down. I was thinking about that while I was making my sandwich and just realizing that I, I am so thankful for how Jesus has changed me, and He's not even close to being done yet. But when I look back at how I used to be, and the things I used to do, and how I used to even think, And I consider now how Jesus is beginning to alter my very perception of the world. It's awesome. Paul says that's the way it was. When the kindness of God, Titus 3 verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We were all stuck with a fool, and that fool was us. But now we are wed to the king. Abigail was stuck with a fool and she became wed to the king. And she's a picture of us. But there's more. Number two, Abigail was short on fruit. While married to Nabal, she was fruitless. She was barren. She had no children. It wouldn't be till later when she's married to the king that she begins to bear fruit, that she becomes a fruitful woman and she begins to have kids. And it's the same with us. Outside of Christ, there is no fruit. We are barren spiritually. But in Jesus, the fruit comes, and I listed it earlier, the fruit of the Spirit, one of my favorite lists in all the Bible, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22-23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that fruit begins to play out in us. And I encourage you sometimes to stop and notice it. I mean, not, not to puff yourself up, but just stop and think, am I more loving than I was a year ago? And if you are, say, praise the Lord. I'm more kind. There's a a piece of fruit hanging off my arm, and it's kindness. (laughs) That's awesome. Abigail was short on fruit. So were we. Number three, Abigail was sure of the forewarning. Verses 14 through 17 in our story, this this servant comes and and he lays out the warning, and Abigail doesn't even question it. She just goes to work taking care of responding to it. She was sure of the forewarning. More and more today, even among Christians, the concept of hell as a real place is considered foolishness. And that that bothers me. I don't want there to be a hell. I don't want anybody to go to hell. It's not my desire for people to burn, baby, burn. That is not it at all. But there is hell. 
And the Bible is clear about it. And it's not a state of mind. And it's not just absence from the Father. That's a favorite, by the way, kind of Christianese statement. Hell is just absence from the Father. No, hell is burning. And gnashing of teeth. And utter darkness. As Jesus himself described, in fact, it was Jesus who said in Mark 9.43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which means there's worms there too. (laughs) I don't know if they're actual worms, but I know it's real. And Jesus spent more time talking about hell than he did about heaven. Did you hear about Carlson Pearson? You may know, or may have heard this name on the news recently. Carlson Pearson, he was a disciple of Oral Roberts. Came out of Oral Roberts University. And he was an up-and-coming, just real promising pastor and just great speaker and was connected to the university and everything. Well, he's in trouble right now. Big time. Oral Roberts University has, has cut Carlton Pearson off. Carlton Pearson has a church called the Higher Dimensions Family Church, which right there should tell you something's a little strange sounding. Higher Dimensions Family Church. He is now preaching a universal salvation. Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Christians, whoever, non-believers, everybody's going to be saved. This is the way it is, because God's a gracious God, so He's not going to send anybody to hell. That's not what the Bible says. Yes, God is a gracious God. Yes, God does not want to send anybody to hell, but the Bible is clear. If people don't choose Him, He is not going to drag them into heaven kicking and screaming. Hell is a reality. And Jesus presents it as a reality, not an idea, not a metaphor. And you might say, I don't like that. I don't either. But it's a spiritual truth. Abigail was sure of the forewarning. At some point in your life, and I don't know if you did, but I certainly did, at some point in my spiritual life kind of went, wow, I don't want to go to hell. Oh, well, Rick, that sounds like people becoming Christians for fire insurance. Well, okay, maybe at first. Some people do. If that'll get them in. (laughs) And then they begin to learn about grace and love and joy and all the wonderful things about being a follower of Jesus. And and that's it. But it's a reality to pay attention to the forewarning. Just as Abigail did, she paid attention and she responded. Had she not, she would have been slaughtered with everybody else. Number four. Abigail speaks of her own failure she speaks of her own failure look at verse 24 again when she said on me alone my lord be the blame verse 28 please forgive the transgression of your maidservant she confesses her sin that's what we do when we come to Jesus to become the bride of Christ to become the bride of the king we confess like Abigail our sin we don't cast blame on other navels around us on other people who may have impacted our lives in the past Well, my dad was an alcoholic, so I'm an alcoholic. Okay, your dad has got to answer for himself to the Lord. You answer for yourself. You take the blame for your own actions, your own behavior, and don't ride on his coattails, whether good or bad. You present yourself to the Lord. So Abigail, she understands this. She confesses. She speaks of her own failure. Number five, Abigail sought forgiveness. She confesses, and then she says, Forgive me. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry, this whole thing came about. And it's her own personal forgiveness she seeks. She doesn't say, please forgive my idiot husband, Nabal. She says, forgive me. Number six, and I think this is very interesting, Abigail saw her own future with David. She saw her future with him. Listen again to what she said in verse 30. 
When the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good things that He has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged Himself. And she says, When my Lord, when the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. When you're sitting on the throne, David, would you remember me? Abigail saw her own future with David. Does this line, by the way, sound familiar to anyone when she says, when the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. You're going to be king, David, and when you do, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? A man hung on a cross next to Jesus, a thief. In Luke 23:42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's what Abigail was saying. Don't forget me when you are established as king. The thief said the same thing. And Jesus said to the thief, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Number seven, David saves Abigail from futility. And this is important because, gang, the real wonder of salvation is not that we accept the Lord, although we are invited to and we need to. That's not the wonder of salvation. The wonder of salvation is that the Lord accepts us. That He accepts us. That He wants us. That He desires us. Abigail didn't call on David. David called on her. After Nabal died, she didn't go chasing him down. You know, like some sick puppy who's just a big fan and hoping that she can find some place in the palace. She stayed right where she was and David sent for her. And the Lord calls on us. And Jesus said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Look at verse 40. This is the last thing I'm going to share. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. We have come to take you. Number eight in this quick list, David sends for Abigail to take her as his bride before he reigns. Before he reigns. The son of David, Jesus Christ, is about to reign. But the Bible tells us before he does so, he's going to take a bride for himself. He's going to call the church. And he's going to take her home. And the church is going to have a seven year period of honeymoon with Jesus. Bride with the bridegroom. Before he comes in his kingdom. Which will happen then at the beginning of that millennial reign that the Bible talks about. And I for one believe in my future with him. Just as Abigail thought she had a future with David. I have a future with Jesus Christ. And I have an eternal future with him. Revelation 19 verse 7 says Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him For the marriage of the Lamb has come And his bride has made herself ready It was given to her to clothe herself In fine linen, bright and clean The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints And then he said to me And listen to this Right blessed are those who are invited To the marriage supper of the Lamb And he said to me These are the true words of God Amen Amen. Let's pray Lord Jesus, you are so good to us. And even the thought of our betrothal to you, our engagement to you, Lord, is so exciting. And we recognize, as your word tells us, before you come in your kingdom, you're taking your bride. And Father, we have all been fools. 
But now we desire nothing more than to be the joy of our Father. And we pray that you will direct our lives and focus us on this very thing. To be your joy. Lord, we know the angels rejoice when one person is saved. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be part of that joy. That we would be used by you in this world to save those who right now are like Nabal. Fools who don't even know. Don't even know what they're doing. Just like we were. Father, we praise you not because we have made ourselves something great, but because you you have called us out of our foolishness and into the wisdom of your Spirit. Giving us, Lord, by your grace, the very mind of Christ, as your word says. That we might think like you and behave like you. And Father, I pray that when we are foolish, you would remind us of that. Convict us, Holy Spirit, and call us back to right relationship with you. And may we be to this world as Abigail was to David. And may we bring joy to you, our Father, until you call us home for that great wedding day. And we long for it and look forward to it in Jesus' name. Amen.